Welcome to the Attractions Group Podcast, alongside Ryan Sir, and this week, David Detling. I'm Don Helbig. Ryan, where can people hear ah, us? So you can hear us on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple, Google, Spotify. You know where to find them. And if you like the video version, and we're pretty handsome if you haven't seen the video version, um, we're available on YouTube by searching for the Attractions Group Podcast. So I I'm so excited about today's episode, aren't you, Don? Very excited. So, David, it's because I'm on here. Any further ado? Yeah, any further ado? I'm doing my my once a quarter uh, uh, appearance on the podcast. Well, it's typically, Thanks typically when 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 David's our, our third co-host, when he's in the third chair, it means he brought in some one of his connections, and this one is one of the biggest ones. So, David, tell us about uh, who you brought to the table for our fine coffee chat this afternoon. Well, uh, he's, he's done a little bit of everything. You can look down the, the list of things that he's done. Uh, Harvard business grad. I'm sorry, Harvard business grad. Uh, he was with the Saturn launch team. I think that's correct. Uh, when GM launched him back in the 90s, CEO of South North America. Uh, he uh, did a little time with uh, Amazon back when they started in, into selling autos online. And then he went on to be CEO of Hurston Family Entertainment, then on to SeaWorld. And uh, now he's... Uh, works with his uh, own uh, leadership program uh, off, based off a book called Love Works. Uh, his name is Joel Manby, and uh, it is just outstanding, just a privilege and an honor to have you on the show. So glad you decided to come. Well, thanks, David and, and Ryan and Don. Good to, good to be with you. I'm really excited about it. I, I, love, I love the industry. I, I love being in it, and uh, happy to have a chat with you guys. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it truly is an honor. But I mean, for people, I mean, obviously, Don was, you know, sitting in the hot seat in the industry. And then David and I are on the outside looking in, in, in many regards. But your name came up. I distinctly remember you being CEO of Hershen. I distinctly remember when you moved over to, to SeaWorld. Uh, both of which, those are two of my favorite chains, just such unique, wonderful parks. Um, but but let's start from the beginning. You know, David had mentioned that you worked in the auto industry. Tell us a little bit about the background of yourself in the auto industry and how that helped shape your ability to be the CEO of a theme park chain. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it didn't start with a real vision that I, I absolutely wanted to be in the auto industry. Really, when I came out of undergrad, I, I grew up extremely poor and uh, we didn't my parents couldn't help me at all in college. And but I had been accepted to Harvard and I knew that was going to cost a lot of money. And GM had a scholarship program that if I worked there for two years, they would they would possibly send me to school. That's actually what led me to want to be in automotive. But then when I got in it, I just I fell in love with it. And uh, I started at the rock bottom. I, I was literally a plant foreman in a truck plant. And my first job out of undergraduate school, I went to a small liberal arts school called Albion College in Michigan. And so. I was working with the UAW on the front line. It was really, really difficult. And uh, I think the long story short, I love the industry, but the culture of the automotive companies was really, really difficult and really a uh, fear-based culture, a lot of anger, a lot of, if you don't hit your numbers, you're out immediately. And so I, I make that point because later when we talk about Hershen, I'll juxtapose what I experienced in the auto industry. Um, but I, I worked my way up the ladder, uh, was one of the senior people at Saturn, as you mentioned, and then uh, was my big my big break was they wanted a Saturn person at Saab 
because of Saturn's success. And, and Saab had a great car, but lousy marketing. Saturn had a pretty lousy car, but great marketing and great distribution. And so they wanted some of that, that sales, marketing and distribution magic at Saab. And I, I went there and absolutely loved it. I, I think as it applies to theme parks, you know, it, it's a very, there's, there are very similar things about both industries. They're retail focused and you gotta keep, you have to have great marketing, but you have to have a great product to keep people coming back. And the focus on the front line is absolutely critical, whether it's the hourly worker in the plant or the person selling the cars in a car dealership, I would call that the front line. And, and those are so critical to the industry. Just like in the theme park industry, if you're not able, as you guys know better, better than I probably, if you can't hire great people at the front line and teach them to love your customer so the customer keeps coming back, both in, in both industries, you'll you'll be in trouble if you can't do that well. And so I, I will say there are a lot of similarities in coming over to theme parks, but one last point I'll make is on the other hand, switching industries made me a much better leader. And I think this is an application for your listeners. In the auto industry, I led more as an expert because I had come from the bottom up. I actually owned car dealerships for a while, came back into the OEM side. So I felt I knew everything or a lot, not everything, but I led more autocratically. And when I came to Hershend and I came in as CEO into a theme park company, I was forced to lead Socratically. I had to ask a lot of questions and I didn't know anything about running a theme park. And I actually felt I was a better leader because I attracted better people who to work for me. I let them do their jobs with, with strong parameters. And I just found that I attracted and kept better people because I learned to lead a little bit differently. So it, I'm glad I had my auto experience, but I'm also really glad I switched to theme parks. I like that in your, I'm sorry, Donna, uh, in, in your book, you'd made mention that when you came into Hearst you were, uh, you really, and you laid out, you really didn't know what you were doing. And when the, the current chairman, I think CEO, I forget what this title was, was taking you around in your mind, in, in, in the humbleness of the moment, you were thinking this is not going to work out. And you, you, you said that you were making a mental list of auto companies to go work for, and you literally hadn't even started yet. Well, you know, but it's because who was turning me around? It was Jack Hershend. And Jack Hershend, as you know, is a legend in the industry. And Jack had been the only CEO and chairman, only CEO for 40 years. And so you think about a legend like Jack Hershend. I was on the board of Hershend already. So it went, while I was CEO of Saab, they asked me to be on the board. So I'm coming to board meetings. I have no intention of coming to theme parks. But when I, when I, when I went to Amazon that in selling cars on Amazon, that was just the right idea at the wrong time. And the dot-com implosion happened. We were forced to sell. Uh, our competitors had a lot more cash than we did. So when, we, when I sold that company, Jack called me and offered me the job. And I, I was just floored by it, but he saw something in me and I certainly saw something in him, but you had, so that's the background, David, that, I was touring with Jack Hershen and when Jack knows everybody in the park and he knows their names and their background and he just, everyone loves Jack and his brother, Pete. I was so intimidated by that. I thought, man, I, I can never fill this man's shoes. 
but it's a great example of how the Hershens handled that transition because they could not have been more supportive. I got all the support I needed. I had a great team around me, great general managers at the parks. I definitely brought a lot. And if you want to get into that, I can. But I think the biggest thing my, my job was to do there was they had a great culture in Branson, Missouri. But the farther you got away from Branson, where Jack and Pete were not, the culture was not as good and or varied greatly, especially as we acquired more and more companies. My job was to take that magic in Branson and put a vernacular to it, to put systems and processes behind it so that the rest of the parks felt as, as good as it felt when you went to Silver Dollar City in Branson. Um, that was job number one. And job number two was to diversify away from really just Silver Dollar City and Dollywood. We needed to add a lot of indoor attractions. So we bought the Harlem Globetrotters, we brought aquariums, and we just wanted to diversify away from two tourist markets that were heavily dependent on gas price and weather. And because as a privately held company, we didn't have the resources to always make it through the downturns like some of the bigger companies did. So that was my task. But it, you know, that's why I was intimidated walking around with Jack Hershen, but it all worked out fine. Well, Joel, talk a little bit more about the culture there uh, with Hershen when you were CEO. Um, how did that culture form your beliefs on leadership and what you teach today? It, it, uh, I'll tell you, Don, I, I can't I can't say strongly enough that. Jack and Pete Hershen and the way Hershen runs their operations changed my life. Um, I'll get emotional if I, if I think about too much. I, coming from the auto industry, you know, I, I can't say I ever loved leading every single day because the cultures were so tough and it felt more like a grind. And when I was in the theme park industry with the Hershens, it felt like I was just called to be there because they literally taught, you know, once we put the vernacular in place, we taught our employees to love each other and therefore love on the guest. And it's not, it is not love as all your listeners are probably, oh yeah, it's nice, soft and fuzzy. Well, you know, I'm working for a public company and we have to hit our numbers. Well, we had to hit our numbers too. And we had a very tough board we had returns that were just as good or better than Cedar Fair or Six Flags. We tracked it. We knew it. But we we taught love the verb, which um, we literally went to 1 Corinthians 13, which is in the Bible. The Hershens are Christians. We didn't ask anybody that worked for us to believe a certain way, but we did ask them to act a certain way. And so we paraphrased 1 Corinthians 13 into seven words that are, are, are really meaning love the verb. So it's being more patient. So meaning you don't call somebody out in public, you praise in public, but you admonish people in privately. You don't embarrass people in a group meeting. Being kind is the second word where it's encouragement. We wrote three, we try to encourage three times more than we admonished. Uh, being truthful, always creating an environment where people will tell the truth not be afraid to tell the truth, which is why most people leave organizations or being trusting is the fourth word, which is trusting people who work for you. Uh, being forgiving is the fifth word, which is not talked about very much in business, but we taught people to actually forgive each other so we could continue to work together. Uh, being unselfish, we had, and we'll talk about Undercover Boss in a few minutes, I, I think, but 
we had a huge foundation that that supported people when they were hurting. So all in the last word was being dedicated where we literally, we measured these words, we talked about these words, people were rated on their leadership according to these seven words, and we call them our beagles. Like what kind of leader do we want our leaders to be? And we all have do goals. We have to hit attendance targets and margin targets and growth targets. Everybody does that in the theme park industry, but we also had beagles which I think created a really dynamic, friendly culture that then translated to the customers who absolutely love coming back. So I can't speak highly enough uh, of the Hershens and what they had. Um, my job, I, I can't say I, cre I did not create the culture, but I did put a vernacular to it to spread it to the other parks. But I, I, I love those people. I love the park. It's a great company. In each of those words, uh, you know, they're difference makers. They are difference makers. And, you know, people think of love as an emotion and it's not, it, it, there is a, you know, the Greeks have four different words for love and eros is the emotional love in Greek. And, but there's also agape, which is the love, the verb. And the problem with the English language is we only have one word for uh, a very complicated topic of love. So, your listeners need to understand it's not it's not the emotion that you feel towards your significant other or your children. It's it's just these specific behaviors that we defined and taught to all of our leaders. Well, Joe, you you brought up the uh, uh, undercover boss episode that you did. Tell us how that came about and uh, what the the outcome of that was and how that affected you. Yeah. The, the the short story is it really impacted me and the company significantly and what happened is you know th this was the first season david so no one knew what undercover boss was we didn't know if it was like 60 minutes where they're going to rake your company over the coal so it was a risk to even say yes uh disney said no six flags said no cedar fair said no uh universal they tried all the bigger companies but they all said no, because it is a legal risk, right? You don't know what they're going to find. You don't know what they're going to communicate. But we said yes, because we had so much faith in our people that we knew whatever they found, it wouldn't be big and it would be great marketing for our parks. And this was coming right out of 07 and 08, when you all know what happened in 07, 08, all the banks went out of business, theme parks were hurt badly. We were making some tough decisions, had to do some layoffs and things like that. We felt we needed this boost. So we did the program and what happened is we, by, by, by luck, we followed the NCAA quarterfinals. I think Duke played Villanova, 25 million people watching that show. We came on right after and that whole crowd followed us and 98% stayed on. And when that show ended, we were inundated. Matter of fact, we had so many emails that our server shut down at Hershen and my, my text, my phone blew up. I still have a six foot wall of notes and letters from people who wrote in saying, we wish we worked for a company like this. We wish we saw leaders like they were seeing on the show. And what I realized, David, is I wasn't the only one, you know, when I was in the auto industry, I, I had an angst in my soul because I felt like there's a better way to lead. I just went to work every day thinking, I'm doing the best I can, but I don't see much being modeled around me. But when we had 
thousands of letters come in, I realized there is a national crisis in leadership. And there's a lot of people that expect more from leadership than they're getting. And that's what led me to write Love Works. I had no intention of being author, but bottom line, I wanted people in their 20s and 30s to learn that love can work in a for-profit environment and learn it early because I didn't learn it. I didn't go to Hirsch until I was 40. And I wish I could have those first 20 years back having learned what I learned at Hirsch and beyond that, that you can lead with love and have an extremely successful, profitable business and eliminate the lie that you have to be an ass to make your business successful. And unfortunately in American culture, there's a lot of people who believe that you got to be a jerk to hit the numbers. And it's not true. You guys know it's not true. But unfortunately, there's still a lot of people who think and, and behave that way. And in today's culture, today's world, the younger generations are not standing for it. And they're they're walking with their feet to go to cultures like Hershen. So the program was very impactful because without the program, I don't think I ever would have written the book. And and the, the book's really been kind of my calling beyond nine to five work um, or nine to nine work in this industry. But um, so that that's that's what Undercover Boss meant to us. Well, and Joel, as you're kind of closing the, the book on your time there with Hershen, uh, just a question that came comes up right here near the end. Uh, when you and I spoke uh, about a year or so ago, you had made mention that while you were there, a uh, sale of a very large theme park chain owned by Paramount Corporation or CBS was coming up and Hershen tried to make a play for that. Uh, can you say anything about how that came about or what, what uh, things you tried to do to make it happen? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all ancient history now. There's nothing There's nothing confidential about it anymore. Uh, uh, our chairman of the board at Hershen, Nelson Schwab, one of the brightest guys I've ever met, great chairman, by the way, um, he helped uh, start King's Entertainment, which which really built or bought the whole chain of Par uh, the Paramount Parks um, before they were Paramount. They were all King's Entertainment. We, we loved the, we loved those parks. I mean, King's Island, obviously fantastic. Canada's Wonderland, one of the best infrastructures we'd ever seen in a theme park. We liked all of them. I don't want to pick you know favorites. Although King's Island is one of the best theme parks ever. Um, and so we tried really hard to to buy it. And when when uh, Paramount decided to sell, uh, and we also had a former Paramount COO, Jane Cooper, on our, in, who was our COO. She's a brilliant operator, wonderful person. So we went after it hard. We bid as high as we could bid. I think the difference, the reason Cedar Fair won the bid, they're a public company, so they had access to capital. Uh, that we didn't, they could get more debt financing than we could. So they were able to stretch in price a little bit more than we did. Um, yet I will say after it happened, in some ways we were thankful because uh, Cedar Fair, because of 07, 08, they got in a lot of trouble and you know they had to cut their dividend because they took on all the debt to buy those parks. They had to cut their dividend, their stock plummeted. Uh, you, know, you, you guys kind of know what happened there. And it wasn't that they made a bad decision. It's just they were unlucky with what happened with the recession. So in hindsight, I don't know that Hershen could have survived that without our access to public markets and being able to raise equity by issuing stock. The Hershens can't do that because they're privately held and, and they, they're the sole owners. 
So maybe it was a blessing that we didn't get it. Cedar Fair had the wherewithal to make it through that downturn. Um, and look, Cedar Fair is a great company. Uh, I love those guys too. So at least they're in good hands. Wouldn't say that necessarily about every 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 theme park company, but I would have seen Cedar Fair. Yeah, I mean, I, I've thought about that in the past about how other chains would have weathered the storm in the you know 07, 08, 09 time. And with Hershend, it would have been probably either that Hershen would be publicly traded in a ton of debt or owned by like Blackstone by now had they bought the Paramount Park. So the Hershen that we know wouldn't exist. Um, I think, Ryan, you're, you're probably, that's probably accurate. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Would have been tough to over. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, so, you know, you talk, you mentioned, you know, you, you had a lot of like really good leaders, uh, the Hershen family and so on. Um, uh, in the theme park industry, uh, but you've been a leader outside of the industry. Can you can you compare and contrast what it's like being the the top dog, the leader uh, in charge of many people in the theme park industry, where the product is entertainment versus cars or you know actual physical goods? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's my answer is probably not what you would expect. Like. The what I loved about the car industry is the car and you know, buying a car is probably the second biggest purchase of your lifetime, right? It's either your home, the next thing is your car, and it's an emotional experience. And at Saturn, we made it so special for people. We applauded, gathered around them, applauded them, and I love that aspect of it. But on the other hand, it is such a large industry that. Even though I was CEO of Saab North America, I reported to the CEO of Saab Worldwide in Sweden and all the engineering was there. And I had to fight like crazy to get changes to the car to fit the American market. I mean, I'll just tell you I got two quick stories. One, cup holders. This, the, the Europeans yeah. do not want cup holders because if you're driving, you're supposed to drive. You're not supposed to drink and eat and drink eat Whoppers and drink big gulps while you're driving. They, they hated that. So yet in the U.S. market, you had to have a cup holder. You wouldn't believe how many hours I spent trying to get a cup holder into one of our SOBs or uh, a really good you know, remote entry system or you know, on and on. I could, But the, my point is you didn't have as much control over the final product because the industry is so big and, and one car line is billions and billions of dollars of investment that I felt more out of control sometimes. Like I wish I could have made bigger changes faster to our car product line. Like I wanted crossover vehicles like crazy in the US market. I knew that's where the market was going and we couldn't get the engineers to do that. In the theme park industry to contrast, what is so amazingly wonderful about theme parks is you get this EBITDA flow, this cash flow every year. And it's completely up to you and the leadership team of what you do with it. The, the, the slate, the palette is blank and the creativity and ingenuity that this industry brings is just so much fun. I, and I love, I actually am, I'm left-handed. I'm a very creative person. I love the creative process. I was very involved in it, maybe more than some of the creative people wanted me to be, but I can't stress enough how compared to other industries, the theme park industry is, is big enough to have scale and cash to do fun things. 
but you're not very restricted. And the creativity that that promotes is I think what makes theme parks so amazing. And, and I, I love the innovation every year in the industry. So that's, that's how I would answer that question. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just a great, great creativity engine. All right, Joel, you came in at SeaWorld when they were headed for a difficult time. So from a CEO standpoint, how do you overcome adversity when it comes to you know, bad PR and uh, diminishing sales as a result of it? <laughs> well, I will say for those watching uh, the visual, I had jet black hair before I went into SeaWorld and it, it literally turned white um, within two years. And uh, I'm not sure I handled the stress very well. It, I can't overemphasize how difficult that whole situation was when when i came in you know the previous ceo jim atchison was just a wonderful human being a great ceo he had been been let go of what happened there so they brought me in and that's a whole different story and i don't think that was fair i don't think he deserved that it was a lot of factors outside of his control but it is what it is and we are still good friends today but um how i tried to handle it is just, I had to focus every day, Don, on what only I could do. We are in such a crisis. Our capital, literally the EBITDA was about 30% of what it had been. And obviously they, they carry the company. If it wasn't for the bush parks that we had in Williamsburg and Tampa, I don't know that the company would have made it. In fact, I'm quite sure it wouldn't have. And so I tried every day to think, there are so many issues going on. We had turnover, operational issues, but we had this, this big elephant in the room, which is the protesters against us and the running of Blackfish 500 times on CNN had taken our trustworthy ratings in America from 85% trustworthy to 30% trustworthy in just two years. And I had never seen in the history of business a brand drop so much and then Shamu, which was our biggest marketing hook, according to the research, had now become our biggest liability. Like people were not coming to the park because of Shamu. And I, so our, our plan was to diversify away from animal shows because we knew that was the lowering tide. And we needed to, the old Sea World, you went in, there were kind of four main animal shows and you know dolphins and killer whales and seals etc and our strategy which worked was to diversify diversify and add a lot of attractions that were still ocean based like we partnered with guy harvey to do a lot of uh, new rides around the chains where guy would come and he would do paintings and mantles and and, and 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 retail would go towards his causes of ocean health so we diversified away from shows to rides festivals, night attractions, um, meaning to get people to stay for dinner time. And so we added a lot of festivals, which do not take the capital dollars. So we had the right strategy and it did work. But what happened that was the big, oh, oh, you know what? <laughs> oh, shit. If I can say that on there. <laughs> of course. Um, we literally were going to expand a killer whale pool in San Diego. The we got word that they were going to pass legislation. The votes had been counted. They were going to pass legislation outlawing the breeding of killer whales. At the same time, the local authorities in San Diego did not allow us to expand 
our killer whale pools to make them more natural and bigger. And we had a whole plan there unless we stopped breeding killer whales, which made absolutely no sense, right? We're going to invest a hundred million dollars in a new ride and then we couldn't breed killer whales anymore. So literally with that legislation that was going to be passed, we were out of business in the long term on breeding killer whales. The decision of the board, and it wasn't just my decision, it was the board's as well. All of us agreed that we were going to have to end. If, if, if breeding was going to end in California, the, the question was we were going to do it across the board and end it in Texas and Florida as well. And we felt like if we didn't, that five years from now, it not only would be in California, that it would move east. And then we'd have activists in Orlando calling for the same thing. And, and PETA was protesting all three of the parks every single week. You know, I, I hate to tell you what they, those people are not good people. I mean, I, I got multiple death threats on my cell phone, not on my cell phone, on my office phone, literally specifically naming out my children. I mean, I had to have security walk me out to cars. Every park I went to, I had to have literally I, one of my security guys was used to work for Clinton as a CIA. Um, and he told me all kinds of great stories about, Clinton, but um, it was insane. And, and yet what people don't realize when they look at what happened, we were outlawed in California and our decision was, do we do it? The other two parks, we decided to do that. And look, those, those distrust ratings, that were down at 35% within, within two months, they had gotten back to about 50 and within six months, they were back up to almost 80% trustworthy. Our numbers did start to change. And in my, as I left, we were up 55% in California, 12% overall. It, it was, it, it is what saved the company in the midst of the crisis, you know, 50 years from now, will it, be the right decision. I don't know. I hope maybe someday culture will change and they'll realize the real power of having these animals and maybe breeding can come back. But in that moment, in that crisis, that's what we were forced to do. So I know that's a long answer to your question, but it was a very complicated, very complicated situation. And the only way I got through it is I, I only could focus on what I could get done and only the CEO could do, which was really that existential, existential crisis of the killer whale and I spent a ton of time in Washington with lobbyists in California trying to beat that legislation back, but it just didn't didn't work. Yeah, that's uh, you, you were definitely there for a fascinating time, and um, you know, the, yeah. the, well, the people that uh, were fans of SeaWorld, like myself, like I saw the value in um, you know the conservation efforts and and so on. So, um, I mean, it's different points of view. It's um, but yeah, you're you're I understand where you're coming from. Um, but let me, well, I'll tell you, no, go ahead. Can I just add one? Yeah. I, I didn't want to make that decision. I, I wasn't happy having to stop orca breeding. We were kind of forced into it legislatively. And could we have sued the state of California? Could we have won those lawsuits? Maybe, but the odds were low and it would have taken five to 10 years. And as a public company, we just, we just couldn't take that risk. And it, I'll tell you the hardest meetings I've ever had in my life was going and I went door to door and met with every trainer that we had, every orca trainer face to face, small conference rooms, lots of tears. They were pissed. They didn't like it. I understood, but I didn't hide from it. I went, I met with every single one of them. I explained why we had to do it. 
And look, 30% of the company did not like it, did not like me because of it. And I, I get it. I understand all that. It's just sometimes you get in situations, you have to make the best decision overall for the long-term welfare of the company. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, speaking of, you know, making decisions and being that guy. Um, so you're in a unique position, um, given your, um, your resume, shall we say. And I've always wanted to ask somebody this because you really aren't in front of these people a lot, but so you've been the CEO of Hershen, which is a private company and the CEO of SeaWorld, which is a publicly traded company. Compare and contrast the two positions because same title, but very different environments, I imagine. Can you elaborate on that? You cannot, Ryan, first of all, it's a great question because I think a lot of people wonder that. You cannot get to more different environments. And, you know, I, I would say, to be blunt and honest, um, which I try to always be, you know, in hindsight, I'd say be careful what you wish for, because I had on my since I was a little kid, for some reason, I always had it in me that I wanted to be a CEO of a public company. Um, I, I wish now that I didn't ever have that on my bucket list. <laughs> Just, you know, in hindsight, I wish I had never left Hershen. You know, I I, I loved that company. And uh, but, you know, SeaWorld called. It was a compelling opportunity. I had been at Hershen 15 years. Um, and Jack and Pete were, they, they understood uh, why I, they, I felt called to go there. But the difference is, as you might imagine, in a privately held company, you always do what's right for the long term and you have a longer term perspective. You know, the, the problem with publicly held companies, they're, they're run by quarterly results. There's way too much time and effort spent on how is it going to impact your quarterly earnings call? And if, you know, the amount of time I spent at SeaWorld, you know, prepping for quarterly earnings calls and going through the rehearsals of it, all that time is not spent on turning the business around and too many decisions are made, you know, and frankly, especially we, we had an activist investor camp came in and um, he wanted even shorter term results. So just the things that were done to cut costs uh, that I think can hurt the brand there's all those pressures are much, much greater in a publicly held company. Uh, the, the upside is you have more resources. You can issue stock anytime you want to gain, to raise capital. You tend to have ability to raise higher debt levels, like four to five times EBITDA versus in the, we were restricted at Hershen to three and a half times EBITDA because, you know, we didn't want to get over leveraged. So that's the positive side of being in a public company. But, um, I think if I had a choice, the honest answer is I'd, I'd always go private if you have the resources and the capital to grow as fast as you want to grow. That's All right. That's the long and short of it. There's a lot more. Yeah. Joel, tell us about your side project, Orange. Yeah, you know, Orange is a, is a huge blessing in my life, uh, Don. It, it's a ministry. It's a nonprofit. But we are the largest distributor of basically church curriculum. So we go all the way from preschool and we teach values is the main point. Um, like for elementary school students, there's 36 values that are rotated every 12 months. So it's a three year cycle. And there are values that any you'd want any child to learn, but they're taught this 
in church. And what was unique about it is we also had things to give the parents, tools to give their parents so that they could reinforce these same values. So let's just say you're talking about generosity in Sunday school. You go home and your parents are also teaching you generosity. And then we had a public school version that we took out the Bible verses and it was just generosity, period. So literally we had kids going to school, getting generosity the same month they were getting at church, same month they're getting at home. It was brilliant. You know, we're in 10,000 churches, 40 countries around the world. And it's just, it feels good to teach the right things to kids. Um, again, just very values-based. So I, I really love that and have been doing it, helped help start it 25 years ago and it's still going strong. So really enjoy that part of my life. Hey, now, I'm sorry, was, did I just interrupt somebody? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, now, you've been in the, in the private company, Herson, then you were in, in the, uh, the public company, the SeaWorld, and now you've got a, a book and a company that, that you've started uh, called Love Works. Uh, and, and we're going to have a couple questions about that, but uh, just an initial for an introduction, give a quick uh, elevator pitch of what Love Works is. It's basically I take the book, which I've already talked a little bit about. Um, it is about how to lead with love. Yep, thank you. And it's, <laughs> it takes those seven words I described earlier and just goes into what are the specific behaviors? What are we really talking about here? And I started a consulting, a consulting firm, very boutique. I keep it small. Um, and I either speak on it or I go into teams and I try to put this culture into place. And I have a five-step process, which will probably be the topic of my next book, um, of how to actually do that. You know, you have to do certain things to, to make a culture go in place. And so I, I, I implement those five steps. I also have something called Executive Circle, where C-suite or aspiring C-suite executives have a monthly call as a group. And I teach them. I have basically a mini MBA in servant leadership where... I teach that and then it includes one-on-one calls with me if they want mentoring or advice on their old career. And, and I have some, some clients that I also do turnarounds with them. So I, I do that about 50% of the time. I love it. And, uh, you know, if any of your, your listeners are interested in any of that, um, joelmanby.com is my website. I'm sure you'll put it in the notes and they can, they can find out more there, but I, I love doing that right now, David. It's just, a, it's a passion and a calling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we will uh, link anything you want in the description. So um, Love Works is the name of the book as well as the company. And uh, as David mentioned, we're going to dive into that a little bit more right now. Um, but uh, so let me ask you this, you know, when we're saying this and you said love is a verb, not necessarily a noun in the context of what you're using. So why does love work and why have you become so passionate about it from a business standpoint? I. I think it's because growing up, you know, we all, we all are great products of our environment growing up. Well, maybe not so great sometimes. My parents were very kind and loving people. Um, and I grew up with that. And so I thought that's how the world was. And then when I got into the business world and I was exposed to General Motors and automotive, as I've already explained some of the stories, and there are many, many more. I really started believing a lie that this is how leadership was and that everybody led this way. 
And I, I many times thought about leaving business altogether. Like maybe I should be a coach or maybe I should be a minister or whatever. And I'm so glad that I hung on because as I said earlier, I had this angst in my soul that there had to be a better way to lead. And, and thank goodness, Jack Hirschen called me and, and asked me to be on the board. And then the rest is history as we talked about it. But I think since I had this parental teaching in my soul that when, when it, it didn't happen in autos, I had this huge angst and I got it. I, it was answered at Hirschen and beyond. I think that's why it resonates with me so much. I just, and plus, look, Ryan, love is the positive energy force on earth. Whether you have a faith or not, everybody agrees the world would be a better place if we had more love in it. And we have more disconnection, more hatred, more negativity now than I've ever seen. And I, I, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think social media amplifies it like crazy and the way we market to people we, we we put labels on people and labels just divide they don't unite and so i believe not only is it a great way to lead i think it's the only positive force on earth left that we can focus on to make leading better to make our homes better to make the country better and you know i'm i i I think to make America great again, we actually need to make America love again. And uh, that's that's why I'm passionate about it. And that's why I do what I do. Yeah, Joel, it seems like that would be, you know, what you talked about, just the, um, you know, perfect way to talk about love as a leadership principle. Well, I, I think, you know, from my standpoint, those seven words, I think the one one thing I'd like to add I don't think it has to be those seven words, right? I mean, people could read my book and they could say, we love the idea, but in our values and our company, we don't necessarily want those exact seven, patient, kind, trusting, truthful, forgiving, unselfish, and dedicated. Like I'm not claiming it has to be exactly those seven. What I am suggesting is those values are related to them that has to be the mandate of how we treat each other, that we should have expectations of how people are treated as well as strong expectations for performance. And if, if there's one thing I'd love your listeners to take away from the conversation on leading with love is that the lie I talked about earlier, that you have to be you know, difficult to get great results. I just don't, I don't believe fundamentally. And that, Everyone can put these kind of beagles in place and you need to measure them, teach them. You need to reinforce them. And matter of fact, at Hershen, we even paid according to hitting your beagles. So if you hit your numbers, your margin and your profit, your do goals, and you hit your beagles, in other words, how you perform to those seven words of love, you would get the top raise. So if you were great, great, you got a great raise. If you were bad, bad, you probably wouldn't last very long. And we spent most of our time in leadership coaching people that were good on the do-goals, bad on the beagles, or good on the beagles, bad on the do-goals. And we would coach and get up to the top box in both. So that it, it's, it's not just a philosophy. You have to have the systems and the processes behind it to make it work, but it's worth, it's worth the effort and it's worth the work that it takes. 
just one more uh, quick question on this, uh, because as you talked about love as a leadership principle, uh, you talk about in your book that uh, you talk about public and private admonishment, and, and different concepts are taken both ways. <laughs> Have you ever given someone a public admonishment uh, using the principles of patience and, uh, and praise and had it backfire? And uh, it, it, in, the, in the age of social media, they can, they can uh, backfire very publicly. Yeah. And, you know, yeah I, how, would, how would you handle that? First of all, every, every rule does have exceptions, right? Every, they say every rule is made to be broken. Even the, the, within patients, one of our behaviors was, as I said earlier, praise in public and admonish in private. There were times that I admonished publicly, and, and I, I talk about it in the book, but there are times where you can do it because you have to set an example. And it, for me, it happened like in a budget meeting, a, a division missed its profit big time last year, and they move immediately into what are they going to do this year without addressing why they missed it. And I stopped the meeting and I, I called them all out and said, this, this isn't acceptable, right? We, we missed big. You didn't have a good forecast. I, I want to I learn from it. Let's talk about what happened. And that was, that was a public admonishment. But I think you do it in a way that keeps people's dignity and respect. And Jack taught me that. He was the master at it. He, he could come in your office and basically read you the riot act, but he did it in such a way that you still left feeling good because he'd start with a positive, he'd go to the heart issue, and then he would end with a, two or three more positives. And he, he actually, when he left the office, you felt okay, but he really just told you, I did not like at all what happened here, or this is unacceptable to me. So even when you have to admonish, there's a way to do it that, that keeps people's confidence and dignity. Because the research says, if you don't reinforce people like, positive three to one and all you do is negative reinforcement they'll lose their confidence they won't re they won't perform as well and they'll probably end up leaving and people just need that encouragement i asked the four of you have, have any of you or any of your listeners had too much encouragement and the answer is always no so that's just one example of you know, the praise and public admonish private, the rule can be broken, but it's how you do it that's that's critical. Awesome. Well, Joe, yeah, go ahead. Do you have any final thoughts? I'm sorry. I was just going to say thank you so much for take, carving out time. I know you're, you're busy. you got to probably move on to the next thing after after the call here. But I uh, really just appreciate you taking a few moments to uh, to be on the podcast to open up not just uh, your book that uh, people can, can buy, but uh, your, your life as a book, really. And uh, before you are, are done here, is there it, uh, you want to tell people how they can uh, get, your, get the book, uh, be on your website, or find you if they... Uh, like what they hear and they want to act on something. Well, yeah, for, for whether it's book or coaching or mentoring or anything, just go to joelmanby.com. Um, all of it's there. But I also want to close with encouragement to you guys and to everybody listening. You know, I know, uh, I know the industry can be really tough at times and it's hard to find good people. It's really long hours and it can get discouraging, especially when the economy goes south. But it's a great, great industry and creating these memories worth repeating that we do. And the best day that a family may have together all year, it's, it's a great, great calling and it's worth it. And 
as I said earlier, we need more love and we need more positive, wholesome family experiences that people can do together. So I just want to encourage you guys, keep doing what you're doing. You have a great podcast, you're building the industry and for everybody listening, just, just keep doing what you're doing. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful industry to be part of as somebody who did not spend their life in it. I can say that with, with great authority. So appreciate what you guys all do. Awesome. True honor, Mr. Manby. It really is. Thank you so much. All righty. Well, thanks guys. Appreciate it. Have a good rest of the day. Well, that was a very interesting conversation. Uh, so thanks again to Mr. Joel Manby for being on the show. Uh, quite an honor. Uh, Don, what do we got next? Well, we have our follower question. You know, So if you follow us on X, the formerly uh, Twitter platform, uh, this one comes from Donnie Lakes. And I thought both of you would enjoy this question. I think it's a great one. It yeah. says, if you could give any IP an attraction, which IP would you choose and what would the attraction be? And for bonus points, what park would house this attraction? So we'll start with you, David. You know, I'm going to defer to Ryan to start this one. <laughs> I was hoping uh, that you would go ahead and answer so I can take some time. I mean, I, you, it's easy to think of the different shows that you like. And, uh, you know, obviously, like, there's different Star Trek things that never really were done right by Paramount, which I think would be awesome. I know that there's a park in Germany um, I don't remember which one that has like a Star Trek The Next Generation roller coaster, which is really well themed and stuff. I'd like to see that. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would say I would say that. I, and if it's any park that's going to do it, that's kind of relative. I mean, of course, I would want Kings Island to do it so I could do it all the time. But when we're talking about what park is going to do it best, I would probably have to be in the camp of Universal. Um, because Universal is aggressive and they're non-cutting and stuff. And, um, uh, I think that they're, they're a fantastic, uh, creative group that, that can do that sort of thing. Back to you, David. <laughs> yeah. As far as any, any, um, uh, attraction, I would like it if uh, one of the regional parks or one of the, uh, in, in I guess, the Cedar Fair parks and the Six Flags parks, I'd consider them to be regional. They're, most of them don't tend to be destination parks. But to have something that is designed by by Universal or or designed by a Disney, uh, there, there's a whole other uh, profit center that could be made out there by designing the attractions and installing them somewhere. Uh, but there's some parks, and, and I'm not as well-versed on them as, as you guys are, uh, but th there's some uh, things that come up every now and then on the IAPA bulletins that get sent out of uh, some very heavily themed attractions that crop up in Europe. That, yeah. uh, just some theming elements that just aren't seen here. It's just the attention to detail. Mm -hmm. I agree. What about you, Don? I'm going to go way out in left field here. Oh, and God. I'm going to pick an IP. I'm going to go with Apple. And okay. Listen to me. I think I think you could have a great attraction with Apple. I think you, know, you could call it like iWorld Adventure. Uh, make it a high-tech, immersive dark ride. It takes guests through a journey. Um, through the evolution of Apple products, you know, you start out with the old Macintosh and then, you know, work your way through the different rooms until you get to where you are today. It could be something that, uh, you know, is continually updated. Uh, but why not? And you think about Apple, you know, they're based out in California. Um, so I would go with, um, you know, and, and they seem to be getting more involved with the tech stuff. I would go with Six Flags Magic Mountain as the park to host this. Really? You wouldn't go with Epcot? 
Because what you said has Epcot written all over it. <laughs> it does. It does. But, you know, but I mean, you got to have some reason, more reasons to, to want to head out west. I agree. And, uh, you know, I'm a big Apple fan. I like my tech stuff. And you know, I spend a lot of Well, my... I thought about you as I thought about what would I call this? And I thought iWorld Adventure. And I thought, you know, it's going to be right up, you know, Ryan's alley because everything about Ryan is Apple. Yeah, it's funny because I was adamantly Android until about 10 years ago. No, not that long ago. It was 20. 16 so seven years ago but um yeah well what's funny is they don't put i in front of much of anything anymore uh because something with the copyright so it would be apple adventure world or they'd announce it as i world and then when it opened it would be apple adventure world so uh yeah very interesting very interesting uh david to add to your point though so universal actually has a group that is exploratory for outside stuff uh and things that are evident of it are the new park in texas as well as the Horror Nights thing in Las Vegas. And um, Don, correct me if you would know this, but they're opening a toothsome at the, I think it's the Philadelphia Phillies Park. Yes, Have you heard about that? So it's uh, yeah. so what you're talking about is out there. Now, will they go to Kings Island or Six Flags Magic Mountain or whatever and design a, you know, an attraction for them? That's, I don't know. But as far as them being reaching out and trying to go beyond their bounds, uh, they're there. I think that's that's really cool. Cool call out. Okay, so let's wrap it up with one of our favorite segments, something we like to call the pick six. And we have a really good pick six uh, because, ironically, SeaWorld announced all their stuff. Don, take number one. Well, number one, Busch Gardens Tampa has announced that they... They will be adding a B&M inverted family coaster in 2024 named Phoenix Rising. Uh, very few details right now are known. However, it will have onboard audio. Uh, yeah, I saw the rendering. Looks really good. Uh, a friend of the show, Brian Lamb, messaged me yesterday after this was announced, and he said, is this an inverted or is this a suspended coaster? And I think it's a great question because it can go either way. Why, why, why do you think it could go either way? I, I think it's pretty inverted. To well, because it swings a little bit. It swings, it swings a little bit, you know. So that's where he thought suspended might come into play because of the swing. Do, do the you cars. draw the line at whether it swings or not? Because for me, it's, it's suspended if the vehicle's below you rather than your feet dangling. That's where I draw the line. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought invert would be the way I would go, mm. but I can see the argument for, for suspended. So what's next, Ryan? All right, number two. So uh, Busch Gardens Williamsburg uh, has been announced that they're going to do an extensive update to Loch Ness Monster. Now, we knew that they were going to be doing uh, some work on Loch Ness Monster, uh, but they went into a little bit more detail. They're going to be uh, doing extensive track work and new effects in the mountain. It's going to be a smoother ride. Uh, the last public rides for the season is going to be October 31st, and there's going to be a VIP event. Uh, just for pass holders on November's 4th and 5th, so they can get, <clears throat> get that one last ride on Loch Ness Monster as it exists right now. But to be fair, the Loch Ness Monster we have right now is also like a retrofit because they have SNS trains that are mock-ups of the era ones. But I freaking love that ride. I'm so excited about that. I love being inside that tunnel. It takes forever. Awesome. Awesome. Ride. David, I believe you have number three. All right. Number three, SeaWorld Orlando announces the new penguin trek coaster coast or i'm sorry guests will board snowmobile like cars and traverse through indoor and outdoor sections the new coaster features two launches and speeds up to 43 miles per hour across a 3020 foot track awesome yeah it's uh it's gonna be you need snowmobile in in, in orlando 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what that's taking over for the Penguin Dark Ride experience. Uh, have you, either of you guys done that? I did. So you did the, did actual, the actual ride? Yeah, two different versions you could ride. The right. The intense one and not so intense one. I don't remember there being two different versions. I, I remember there's a way where you can go just in the Penguin exhibit, which is the only thing that's been open since COVID, I think. Uh, but then they had those autonomous ride vehicles, kind of like what they have for Ratatouille and stuff like that, where um, it takes you around a dark ride. Um, I remember when that was new. Uh, the ride, honestly, was fine. It, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And a lot of people just went in there for the air conditioning. So I think it's a fair trade. I don't know. What do you think, Don? I think so. It sounds, you know, sounds fun. You know, you got over 3,000 feet of track. You know, as David mentioned, 43 miles per hour. Uh I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's going to be great for families. I agree, and it's a it's a B and M too, um, so that'll be interesting. The one at a Dark Coaster is Intimate, I think, right? Yeah, this is very similar to you know a couple other ones they've got out there. You've got uh, Waybreaker, uh, the Rescue Coaster at uh, Sea World San Antonio, mm -hmm. and Arctic Rescue of uh, at Sea World uh, San Diego. Yeah. And those are by Intamin. So really, the, you know, similar, but different manufacturer here with B&M. Yeah, I, I agree. This will have indoor and outdoor sections. So it's two launches, but I don't think it's two courses. Uh, like with Dark Coaster, you go through the whole course twice. But since it's in the dark, you I haven't ridden it yet, but you allegedly don't notice it because it has different effects every time you go around. But um, yeah, this will be cool. Uh, the cool part about SeaWorld is that they announce something, they build it, and they open it rather quickly. So by the time we make it out there, maybe in the spring or so, then we'll probably get to ride. Okay, Don, I think you're back. Looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah, Harry Potter fans, uh, they show respect to the Dumbledore actor at Universal Parks. The tribute to the recently deceased Michael Gambon uh, took place at uh, Hogsmeade in Universal Islands of Adventure. Fans dress in wizarding robes. Uh, waving wands and butterbeer in hand, uh, they march together. Uh, their wands, uh, their wands pointed upward in a unified uh, gesture of respect and remembrance. You know, it's kind of cool. You know, it's it, we all know. You know, Harry Potter. You know, it's got a terrific, tremendous, huge following. So uh, you know, it, it's nice to see uh, see what they did there. So my fondest memory of Harry Potter is the time when David and I were down in Universal on other business and I was able to finagle some universal tickets for us. And uh, David swore me to secrecy to not tell his daughters that he and I went to Harry Potter world without them. <laughs> Do you remember that David? Yep. And I blew the lid off that on my own and, and kind of buried myself. <laughs> well, it was fun. I mean, honestly, the vast majority of what I know about Harry Potter is through the parks, but uh, a couple friends of mine tried to show me the first movie. Uh, we watched about half of it, and I mean, I like what I saw. I just, I got to take the time. There, there's so many movies, and they're so dang long, but uh, boy, are those fans committed, right? They are, and it's, you know, but you like to see that kind of, you know, loyalty and, you know, paying your respects, and it just shows how strong that brand is. I Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, and what and I Universal see is, is cool. Universal does such a great job of, of literally making it come alive. Yeah. And, and they, they're very good at plussing it, too. Like, uh, they made a big deal about having the Death Eaters in... Um, Diagon Alley. Sorry, I'm 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 trying to pull up my Rolodex of uh, Harry Potter terms, but they had the uh, the Death Eaters in Diagon Alley, and 
people were super excited about that. And I was like, yeah, who cares? But they actually did the, I mean, I put it as one of our shorts on YouTube, but they do this thing where they wave the wands and then fire comes out, the lights go off and stuff. It's just, it's so cool. All right, enough about Harry Potter. Let's talk about Wonder Woman. So we're over at Six Flags Fiesta, Texas now. Our good friend, Jeffrey Siebert, showed us an update that uh, Wonder Woman Golden Lasso, which is a uh, RMC single rail coaster, the first one in the world, uh, has reopened after its phase one was completed of a multi-phase improvement project for that ride. Uh, so this first phase uh, improved things like the controls and the station and so on. Um, so it's gonna be open through the end of the year and then in early 2024, it's gonna close again and reopen with the most noticeable thing to the guests being that it's gonna have new trains uh, and they're supposed to be more comfortable. So I don't think any of us have been on one of those, have we? I have not. Have you, David? No. Yeah, I mean, I. I've always heard that there are comfort issues and stuff, but it's funny because it's almost like the uh, 4D coasters where I always hear the smaller ones are the better ones. So the one at um, uh, the Cedar Fair Park at, in California was a Great America that has one, I think. And then Six Flags Fiesta, they Texas, do. they both opened Mirror Clones. But then they opened the one at Six Flags New Jersey, which is way bigger, and people still rave about the original one. So very, very cool. David, what's up next? Number six, uh, USA Today announced the results of the fan-voted Top 10 Best Halloween Theme Park event list. Uh, winners include uh, Hollow Scream at the Busch Gardens Parks, uh, Hollow Scream at the SeaWorld Parks, and uh, Hell of Fun at Knoebels. I, I thought it was I so funny that right. the top three were Hollow something. You know, I mean, I, as people in the industry, we understand why SeaWorld and Busch Gardens have the same name for their Halloween event, how it's Hollow Scream. But it, since it's Hallow Fun for the third place one, that just puts the icing on the cake. But congratulations to those three. Uh, Don, you experienced Hallow Scream at Bush Gardens Williamsburg. Would you say that, you know, just from your knowledge and your experience with that one park, that it's one of the better ones in the United States, that it's a worthy vote? Yeah, I believe so. You know, my experience there was I thought it was very tastefully, you know, done. Um it was uh, just the attention to detail when you went through the haunted, you know, houses, uh, the midways for the the scare zones, uh, the actors, you know, all into their their characters. Um, so I was really impressed with it. Uh, you know, I definitely you know plan to go back next fall. Awesome, cool. Hey, what a pick six! All right, yeah, I love it when our pick six is like we have to choose which um, ride announcements we're gonna do with that, but. Um, very cool news out of the, uh, the SeaWorld parks. Uh, thanks again to Joel Mamby for being on the show. Make sure that you check out his book, Love Works. Uh, we're going to have a link in the description of where you can find him at joelmamby.com as well as his book, which I ordered on Amazon. I, I realized I hadn't ordered it yet, so I ordered it while we were talking. So I'm going to read that and, you know, I'll, I'll put something online about my thoughts with it. But, uh, he had some very interesting stories and it was fantastic. But David, thanks for uh, sitting in the third chair today. Uh, thanks for putting up with me uh, and, and pulling uh, pulling the old third chair card on you. Yeah, Don. Thanks for uh, thanks for co-hosting. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun, and you know I've worked with a lot of different presidents and CEOs throughout my you know career, which also includes the the uh, sports industry. And you know Joel seemed like the kind of guy that you know you would want to work mm -hmm. for. Like just uh, you know being straightforward. Uh, you know, transparent, honest, all those kind of things. And uh, just the kind of guy, you know, again, you want to work for. And like Ryan, you want to buy his book. And I plan to as soon as we uh, log off. Yeah, here. yeah. I mean, that's that's the funny thing about it is we have a lot of people that have written books that have been on the podcast. And I usually buy them 
and I kind of made the decision to to kind of slow down because I've got so many books piled up that I'm I I just don't have time to sit down and read this many books. But you know, he starts talking, and I'm I'm just like, man, I like what that guy has to say. I I could take something from this. So I went ahead and ordered it while he was <laughs> during the interview. But awesome! So make sure you check us out on your favorite podcast apps: Apple, Sp- Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. You know where they are. Um, you can watch the video version on YouTube. Uh, follow us on X slash Twitter at attractions underscore GRP. If you're interested in a sponsorship spot, shoot us a private message and uh, we'll shoot some out. So thank you, everybody. And we will see you next week.